0: hi hey welcome to the cordial catholic podcast a podcast for non-catholics new catholics and those looking to dig deeper into the catholic faith this is a place to have catholic conversations from the heart of the catholic church i'm kay albert little i'm an evangelical convert to catholicism and as i was making my way into the catholic church if there's one thing i noticed and realized it was how poorly i understood the catholic faith My goal here is to fill that gap by having conversations with actual Catholics about Catholic topics, so our information is from first-hand sources, from the Church herself. This episode is a simply fantastic one. I can't tell you how excited I was to have this guest on the podcast. It's Dr. Lawrence Feingold. We're talking about typology and the Catholic Church in the Old Testament. Is the Catholic Church prefigured in the Old Testament as a one, holy, apostolic church? Does that exist? Is that something that the Old Testament points towards? Or is the church meant to be understood as this invisible collection of believers, as I understood as an evangelical? Dr. Feingold is simply fantastic on this topic. He goes into so much detail that I really think, and I mentioned this in the interview, you'll have to rewind and re-listen to this interview a few times. It's incredible. And I have to say again how blessed I feel to be able to have these conversations. I truly spent the entire day thinking and preparing for this interview and pinching myself because I thought I was dreaming. I mean, Lawrence Feingold fantastic and i do want to thank my patrons for allowing me to do this incredible work through their generous support of the show for helping to keep the lights on and the show running helping to pay for our hosting fees and all those important things that keep this podcast possible i want to thank a new patron this week james s thank you james s so much for enabling this podcast to be possible Guys, I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for praying for the show. Thank you for fasting and all of your support. If you'd like to financially support this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash cordial catholic and even $1 a month helps to keep this podcast running. Thank you so much, guys, for all your support. I do truly feel so blessed to be able to sit down and have these conversations with Catholic thinkers. I mean, guys, Lawrence Feingold, really. Welcome to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I've got to say, I have been pinching myself all day to make sure that I am not dreaming, because today's guest is a bit of a dream for me. This is a bit exciting. We have Dr. Lawrence Feingold. Dr. Feingold is an associate professor of theology and philosophy at Kenrick-Glennon Seminary in St. Louis. He converted to Catholicism in 1989 together with his wife while engaged in realist marble sculpture in Italy in nineteen ninety nine he earned a doctorate in theology from the pontifical university of the holy cross in rome he is the author of a number of books including the eucharist mystery of presence sacrifice and communion faith comes from what is heard an introduction to fundamental theology A three-volume series entitled The Mystery of Israel and the Church, and The Natural Desire to See God According to St. Thomas Aquinas and His Interpreters. Dr. Feingold, I am so thrilled to welcome you onto the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And if this is a dream, it's a great one. All right. So I want to get into it with you. And uh, like me, you're a convert to Catholicism, but I've heard your story before, and I find it especially unique. So could you give us maybe a kind of thumbnail sketch of what drew you into the Catholic Church? Okay. Well, that, it's hard for
1: me to keep it short, but I'll do my best. And um, it was the, the principal um, preparation was through um, art, art and, and culture in general. So I stayed in college. I went to Washington University in St. Louis and I studied comparative arts. So as part of comparative literature and art history and I had a great art history professor who introduced us to um, Renaissance art and medieval art and Norris K. Smith was his name. And he taught us to look at works of art to um, with an eye out for the world view that was animating them, the convictions about the meaning of life about God, man, and the world that underlie them, and to put to, um, to keep that together with um, the beauty of the work of art. And the idea, maybe unspoken, was that truth and beauty go together. So if something is profoundly beautiful, it's reasonable to think that there's a truth to that world view that animates it. Uh, and um, he didn't say it quite as clearly as that, but that's what I took away from his course. And um, so my wife and I um, spent a year in Germany, junior year abroad, and we had the opportunity to travel throughout Europe and see all Gothic cathedrals, Chartres and Notre Dame and um, go to Italy and Rome and Florence and Venice. Um, and then later, after um, after we graduated, I stayed around history and then I wanted to do stone sculpture. And so we ended up living in Italy for three years in Tuscany. And so we were constantly in churches looking at Christian art, but we would leave when there would be a mass. Um, but that was all a great preparation for the faith. And I was aware, so I was raised an atheist. And um, so I was brought up with no, my dad's Jewish, but a Jewish atheist. My mom was a fallen away Protestant. And uh, my wife was um, Jewish, but she had also fallen away from the practice of her faith college. And I'd actually never prayed in my life. And um, so I was aware that it was there was an incoherence between my admiration for Christian culture and this religious culture and my not asking the truth question about it. And it really hit me one time in um, in St. Peter's in um, the Sistine Chapel, looking at the, the last judgment of Michelangelo and, and thinking, um, what would Michelangelo think about our admiration for it? aesthetically as a, you know, as a work of art without asking, is there a judgment and, and where will I stand? Hmm. So that kind of, I knew that that was incoherent. Um, And then the second thing was, well, the most important thing was that my wife at this point got pregnant. We had been married seven years and, um, and during the pregnancy, it was apparent to me that I, I didn't have a conviction and a worldview to pass on to him and to our child. That was disturbing, and um, and then more approximately, um, about two six months into the pregnancy, my wife had this very severe anxiety about about the child, and um, and one day she said she didn't want to live, and that was actually the the moment of grace uh, waking me up from. So I kind of naively assumed that we could fulfill one another, um, through our own love and so forth, but in the face of this difficulty. I, On the one hand, I wanted to run away from it, and then I could see I I simply was not able to to love her in such a way that filled her need to be loved or anything close. And then it hit me, but there must be someone who can and does, otherwise um, life wouldn't make sense. Um, And so um, it hit me that I also had to pray and ask to To be able to love her better, so that was the the beginning. So I the next day I went, I got on a t- train to go to Florence, but I'd pray in the Duomo, and on the way I started to pray, teach me to love, and to be a light unto others. Um, and that clearly wasn't from me, right? So we, we call that the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which I didn't know <laughs> too much about at that moment. <laughs> but um, and then after making that. I felt the words of um, baptism of Christ you are my son and I'm well pleased and I understood again not through me that that was being said um, to the son to, to Jesus Christ and to us in him and so I saw we had to be Christian and so I did actually end up going to the cathedral briefly and kneeling there that was hard and then coming back and so then and um, explained this to my wife and we had a kind of Um, back and forth and tug of war. But she she also, she wanted to believe in in God and in love and in meaning, but she didn't want to believe irrationally. And so um, about a week or 10 days later, we ended up um, going to our local parish um, in Florence, um, sorry, in Tuscany where we lived, beautiful Romanesque church. And it was the fourth Sunday of Easter, Good Shepherd Sunday, vocation Sunday and um, so we were just going to go to pray first and then leave but our landlady came in and so we ended up staying in it and it was very moving for us um, for both of us Um, and so that that was the beginning Um, we ended up oddly enough getting baptized in the Anglican Church in Florence (laughs) it seemed like the Anglican Church was an easier step especially with regard to the social so I was raised in a very liberal household and and um, so the Anglican church positions were less challenging on that score. And then I was also thinking, is such a powerful conversion experience, about I knew that you could be a married priest. But in any case, um, I had misgivings about it because I really like, fall in love with Catholic culture. St. Francis of Assisi and, the, and <clears throat> the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. And, and so it was totally incoherent um, um, joining the Anglican church. Um but in any case I didn't fully realize it until a couple months after we were baptized I started reading uh, we were members of um, the British Library in Florence so I, I would browse and um this the Newman, a Newman reader just kind of called out from the shelf um a reader John Henry Newman and um I fell in love with that it just spoke to me and so um um I read his autobiography Apologia Pro Vita Sua and his introduction uh, essay on the development of Christian doctrine and um, the next few weeks or month, and um, it seemed clear that we should enter the Catholic Church. So we went through RCA, um, so we um, started RCA three months after we were baptized. And this is 19, yeah, 1988, December, and we um, entered the Catholic Church on March 25th, 1989. <laughs> so that's our the thumbnail sketch. And then I wanted to study theology after that. So we ended up um, going back to Rome because we already knew Italian. And I studied in in Rome for eight years at um, um the University of the Holy Cross
0: hmm wow, that's such a fantastic story. Thank you for sharing even that sketch uh for us It's such a i mean two things that I think of in hearing that um you know the the first is the the medieval Catholic Church is often something that is i don't want to say abhorrent but would push people away from the Catholic church. I'm thinking of, of the reformation and the reformers and the medieval Catholic church, that part of history kind of gets a bad rap sometimes, but, but that's what, in a sense, the art and the beauty and the culture of that time drew you into the church. That's yeah. pretty interesting.
1: I mean, chart cathedral. What do you, how can you explain it? I mean, it's it, weird. Where does this come from? What makes this possible? Right. The Gothic cathedral, so many things. Um, that was kind of what hit us first. Was and um, that's the beauty of, of the visual arts is that they're visual and you don't need to know um, that much history to be um, captured by them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and so the, but then lives of the saints, Saint Francis, and we didn't know too many saints. He was the principal one that we knew actually, <laughs> um, but um, something and um, Christendom, um, obviously um, living in Italy today. It's interesting because you see Christendom all around you, even though um, the era is, is long past. In other words, you see it, the signs of what a, um, a vital um, Christian culture could produce, right, in the arts and yeah. – yeah, anyway, so that's what spoke to us.
0: Yeah, that's so, that's so remarkable. I, I find that journey through the beauty and art. And I guess the other thing I wanted to mention was how profound the impact of this one teacher that you had, this, this art teacher who taught you to seek out the, the truth in the beauty. What a profound impact that one person had and has had on your entire life,
1: right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. So often, I mean, this gives, um, courage, I think, to teachers, because so often we don't see the results. Right. We plant teachers, plant seeds. And so I never told that professor the impact that he had. And he's passed away a long time ago and never knew. Um, And so it's often that way, I think, in life that um, um, God hides from us um, some of the um, what what grows up from the seeds that um, that get planted.
0: Hmm. Um, yeah and I think of a friend of mine who's a science teacher who he's a he's a Christian teaching in a public school but he he presents science you know he he instills that sense of wonder that I feel like you mm-hmm. had instilled in you by this art professor he tries uh-huh. if a kid asks well where did this Part of thing science come from you know if if you're a true if you're a true scientist if you're going to be honest about science is you get to a point where you can you say oh i don't know we have all these theories this this thing this big bang bang but what what made the bang bang right you get yeah. to a point in science when you have an opportunity to instill that wonder and i think of this friend of mine who spends his days trying to instill that wonder in these kids yeah. uh that that search for truth in the beauty of science
1: yeah. Yeah. No, that's it, educate. The secret, it seems to be of teaching is to to communicate wonder. I mean, that's the first thing. Um, this this professor that I had, so he was a, a Calvinist and, and and he one time he said, you know, I'm a professor. That means that I need to profess something. If I'm just simply giving you facts, then I'm falling short of my calling hmm. to profess a conviction. Um, and th- the very first day of class, um, I, re- I still remember that. This is a long time ago, <laughs> 1977. Um, he, um, he put up two slides a Rembrandt portrait of a man named Jan Six, and then a, um, a 20th century abstract expressionist work by um, De Kooning called Woman Number Four, or Woman Number Six, I can't remember. And um, kind of dehumanized, trampled um, the sound and the fury but um, kind of without human dignity. And he asked us, if we were on our deathbed, which of those two images would we want to contemplate? And right, you have 218-year-olds in this lecture hall who've never thought about their deathbed.
0: <laughs> and uh,
1: yeah, so that was a first seat.
0: Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Wow. Okay, so... I want you to take us into the Old Testament, and I want to talk about how certain aspects of Catholicism and the Church herself were maybe prefigured in some of the books of the Old Testament through what we call the study of typology. But first, can you talk to us about what typology is and how we know that it's a valid way to read the Bible to begin with?
1: Okay, so the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church has a, a beautiful little section on the senses of Scripture. The meanings of scripture. And it, it's one of my favorite sections, um, 115 through 117. And um, it, the, the key idea is this, that all of scripture has a first sense, which is simply the meaning of the words rightly understood. Right? so every text um, communicates through, the, through its words, and you have to rightly understand those words. And we call that, this might be a little confusing, the literal sense, um, but we don't mean literalistic and we mean the meaning of the words according to the intention of the author, in this case, the human author and the divine author, um, what those words are trying to communicate. But those words communicate, above all in the Bible, events. And right? so the, the Bible is largely telling us salvation history. So it's narrating a history, or a, a magnificent story, right? starting with creation, and then we get Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so events are being narrated by words. But then we can ask, well, those events, do they also, can they also have a meaning? And the Christian tradition has always answered, yes. And in fact, already the Jewish tradition um, saw a meaning in events. Um, And with that, and this can, now, that's not unique to the Bible. And great works of fiction... Also have more than one meaning in a given passage. Because an author can use a given event that he's narrated through words to foreshadow some later event that he that'll be important in the story and um, in its culmination, in its climax. Right? And so foreshadowing would be an example in which a given passage has its own meaning and then has a meaning um, in relation to things to come. Right? And an author can do that because he's inventing those events, right, that are pointing to later events in the same story. Mm-hmm. A human historian can't do that. So in a, in a human book of history, a historian simply has to narrate what happened and think about what it means. But he can't make events, foreshadow later events, because he's not the author of those events. But God, who's the author of scripture, is also in some sense, in a very profound sense, the author of history in that his grace molds history, and thus the events in his providence, and thus the events of salvation history that are recorded in the Bible are events molded by God in such a way that earlier events can point towards later ones. And everything point to the central event, which is Jesus Christ. And so Christ can become the center of Scripture in such a way that things before him prefigure him and point to him and then he is the model of things still to come and that would be the life of heaven and our christian life in the church today so there can be there are different kinds so all of this we call typology let me give a definition typology would be the meaning of an event or reality insofar as it itself is a sign of things other than itself all right, so the, the literal sense of scripture is the meaning of its words, according to the intention of the author. And the typological sense, sometimes called the spiritual sense, is the meaning of the events or realities um, described by the words, insofar as they point beyond themselves. And so a classic example would be the crossing of the Red Sea. Right, so the is the Exodus. So, the Israelites pass through the Red Sea through the miracle of Moses um, and his staff parting the waters. And so they pass through the waters, as on dry land, um, into safety, right? Away from their oppressors, the Egyptians. And then when the Egyptians seek to pursue them, the waters return to their course and wash them all away to their destruction. And so those um, that pursued them, Pharaoh and his chariots, end up no longer able to harm them. And so the Christian tradition reads that scripture on the um, the night of the Easter vigil. And that's the night in which um, typically, um, traditionally, adults are are baptized, um, adult converts. And so um, this that reality, Israel passing through the Red Sea, is a kind of sign of baptism. Because in baptism, we pass through water and being pursued, being pursued by the sins of our past life, which end up getting washed away by the baptismal water, like the chariots of Pharaoh and, and Pharaoh himself. <laughs> and so that's, that would be an example of an event in the Old Testament, which has a, a literal sense, that would be the history that happened, and a typological sense in which it points forward
0: to, to baptism. Oh, that's fantastic. So how do we know that reading the Bible typologically, uh, I think that is a word. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do we know that that's a valid way of reading the Bible? You mentioned the catechism tells us. Is there there a history of...
1: Yeah, but obviously the catechism has to get it from somewhere. And the principal source is, as we should imagine, Jesus Christ. So Jesus was the one who um, used typology in his teaching frequently. So, for example... He spoke it when he was asked about a sign, and he said there will be no sign except the sign of Jonah. How, what does Jonah have to do with Christ? Jonah, a prophet who lived centuries earlier. Um, in, in two ways, Jonah is a type of Christ. Right? so he was Jonah was um, fleeing from the Lord's mission, right? got in a boat, and um, there was a huge storm. And so he was cast into the waves and um, swallowed up by a whale and then cast out of the whale on the third day onto land. And so that's a type of Christ's death and resurrection. And so Christ uses it of himself. But then there's a second part to the story where Jonah goes after that to Nineveh and um, makes the prophecy that the city will be destroyed unless they repent. And miraculously, they repent um, at his preaching and are not destroyed. And that's a type, Jesus says, of also of, um, the conversion of the Gentiles that happens not through Jesus himself but through his apostles um, and so th- that would be an, an example in Jesus' preaching and he does it frequently, he spoke of the bronze serpent in the desert um, as a type of his cross, so the bronze those who were bitten by serpents in the desert because they grumbled and murmured about um, leaving behind the flesh pots of Egypt um, Moses made a bronze serpent, brazen serpent and lifted it up, and those who gazed upon it were cured of the serpent bite. And so Jesus uses that analogy, and um, about his own passion and cross, right? That he will be raised up, um, like the brazen serpent. And um, but the principal texts are, um, at the um, on Easter Sunday. So on Easter Sunday, as he's going to Emmaus with the two disciples, right, who lost faith and are, are. In grief over the events, and he he pretends not to know what's going on, and he he, um, he asks them what's occurred and so forth. And so finally, he says, "Ye have little faith, right? Shouldn't these things have happened, because they were foretold in the books of Moses, the prophets, and um, and the writings, and and so he went on to uncover the scriptures to them. Now we don't have exactly we don't have that discourse. Luke simply tells us that um, he showed to them how um, his passion, death, and resurrection was prefigured in the books of Moses and the prophets. In the prophets, there are prophecies, but in the books of Moses, there aren't direct prophecies of Christ's passion and resurrection. But there are many types or figures of them. And so Jesus, we could say on Easter Sunday, inaugurated the Christian way of reading the Old Testament— It doesn't take away from the literal sense. It presupposes it. But on top of that, it sees a deeper meaning um, that centers on Jesus Christ as the central content of all of God's revelation. So that would be – the. but it's it's even in the prophets. So the prophets speak – Isaiah, um, Jeremiah, Ezekiel – they speak of the future – and um, Messiah and redemption in terms of a new Exodus. So, in order to speak about what the Messiah will do when he comes, they use the images of the Exodus. Um, and so, there'll be a new Moses, a new David, a new um, liberation, a new ingathering. Right? And so that we can see already the Old Testament reads its own events typologically.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating, yeah.
1: And then that's, that's the principle. Scripture is the principal source, but it's also in the church's liturgy everywhere. So just even simply in, in Sunday Mass, we get generally a reading from the Old Testament and, um, and then um, from, the new, from the Gospels. And there generally is some connection between the readings such that the Old Testament is prefiguring what we get realized in the New very often. Scott Hahn tells a, a story about that, that he was doing um, research into um, um, Matthew 16, where where um, Peter is promised the keys of the kingdom. And um, in, there's a passage in the Old Testament in Isaiah, where it speaks of the keys of the city of David being given to the, um, the prime minister, as it were. And so Scott Hahn had thought, ah, I discovered this typology. And he goes to Mass and The um, the text of Isaiah was the first reading, and the gospel was Matthew 16. And these, obviously, yeah, we don't invent them. We just um, come to recognize them. And the liturgy is the principal way that the Catholic faithful are um, um, introduced to this, we could say, this providential governance of history that everything points to Christ, and then Christ points the way to the christian life and the last things
0: Hmm. that's really interesting and i hadn't thought of that before to be honest how the the liturgy at least presents this typological reading of the bible as kind of the normative way of reading it
1: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yeah. and the fathers are full of it Um, and um, the best example is probably the easter vigil right so in the easter vigil I mean, usually some of the readings are skipped because it's very long, but there are eight Old Testament readings, and um, all of them giving different kinds of types of baptism and confirmation. Yeah, so starting with creation, crossing of the Red Sea, um, those are the principal ones. But um, you, the Noah's Ark is another type. Um, st- Right.
0: the Scripture is full of it. I do want to specifically get into how, how the, the church is prefigured typologically, but maybe could you briefly talk about some other aspects of our Catholic faith? You've mentioned a few here, and you just mentioned baptism and confirmation too, but could you mention a couple of examples of aspects of our faith life that we can see as types from the Old Testament?
1: Maybe the Eucharist is the best example. But it, um, actually, let me start with Jesus Christ. The Scripture will there'll be the greatest number of types for those things that are most important in the fullness of God's plan, right? So that just as a novelist is going to prepare for what's the climax, the most important themes by foreshadowing. So, so God does in scripture. And so the reality that the, are most types of are clearly the incarnation. Um, And so we find, I mean, Moses is a clear type of, of Christ. And then there's, um, so Moses leads the people out of exile into liberation Christ um, delivers us not from physical enemies right, but from Satan, death, and sin and alienation from God right, so that would be um, David a type of Christ right? so David liberating the people ruling them making the, um, a united empire of the, um, of the old covenant of Israel and Christ the king but a different, a more universal king, a king of the universe, um, a king who doesn't conquer by sword. And so the type and the reality are not on the same level. Right? So the, the type prefigures a reality that exists on, a, on a, higher, a different level. There are many types of Mary. So in the Old Testament, our first type would be Sarah. Right? Sarah, who is barren and too old. And yet is promised um, a son who will have offspring greater than uncountable. Um, Yeah, I'm sorry, before that. um, um, So Sarah, um, even though she laughs at first, right, is a type of of Mary in that regard. And before that, Eve is a type, a type hereby opposition. So Eve, disbelieving, wins death for us. Disbelieving God, believing the fallen angel, brings about death and the the heritage of original sin. Mary, believing God, and believing the angel, and so forth, bringing about life. And so that would be um, some of the most obvious examples. The Eucharist, um, likewise, is um, at the center of God's plans, and so there are so many figures of the Eucharist. Um, Maybe um, a first obvious one being the manna in the wilderness. So the Israelites are wandering in the desert and there's no food. And so God provides for them a food that doesn't come from below, isn't the fruit of human labor, but comes from above, like dew. And you can't have dominion over it. You get just, no matter how much you gather, you get the right amount. And the right amount just for that day and for the Sabbath. But... Um, and so it's a type of the Eucharist as a nourishment that comes from above that isn't that we don't have dominion over. And even the name of it, mana, meaning in Hebrew, what's that? <laughs> um, and the Eucharist being um, the most mysterious reality. right? something that even though yeah, I teach a course and I've written a book on it. But at the end of the day, I have to say, what's that? Um, <laughs> mana. um just like all the rest of the people, Um, and um, having no particular taste of its own. And in fact, if one desired, one could desire the flesh pots, one could prefer other things to it. Um, But for those who are rightly disposed, it was like honey. Um, And so the Eucharist, likewise, it it feeds us with supernatural life, but we have to be rightly disposed to profit from it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So those would be some examples. Of um, another is the tree of life at the very in Eden, right? So in Eden, man's first creation, he was made put in a, a garden, right? So there, I mean, the tons of typology in Eden. He was Eden being a type of heaven, but not yet heaven. Um. And in the center of the garden, there was right there were the two trees. So even the, the tree of knowledge. Of good and evil is a kind of type it's a type of our wanting to have dominion over the knowledge of good and evil in the sense of defining for ourselves good and evil rather than receiving it from God because ultimately we I can't define what is good or evil but that comes from um, the Creator um, and so the eating of the tree we should think yes it's something that happened But at the same time, it's a type of what I do as well, wanting to define for myself and determine for myself good and evil. Um, And then in the center of the garden, there was the tree of life. right? And that we should understand as not simply physical life, but the divine life that God wants to share with us, his life. So in the garden, that tree of life was a kind of means of partaking, of his life right and so the eucharist in a very real sense restores to us that contact with the tree of life because in the eucharist we receive he who is the life the way the truth and the life
0: yeah that's great so i guess for me here's the here's uh the zinger maybe because okay as a non-denominational evangelical Protestant, I i believed, uh, and I was taught that the church was this kind of invisible collection of believers, that anyone who believed in Jesus was part of this kind of global network that we called the church with a with the capital C. But as I began to dig into that idea and study my faith and especially the roots and the history of my faith, uh, I began to see that this really wasn't always the way the church uh was understood or understood herself even so I wonder if you can talk to us about how the Catholic Church this idea of a one holy apostolic Church how do we see uh, do we see that prefigured in the Old Testament
1: yeah absolutely great question so um, we see it everywhere it's in fact it may be too obvious to see perhaps so the, the key type here is Israel right so Israel the people of the Old Covenant, and their way of life given to them by God, of all at Mount Sinai, and structured um, a people of God that, yes, has a literal sense. It was a reality in itself, um, a reality that still continues today, I in the Jewish people, but a reality that also pointed beyond itself to another people of God, which is the church. Now, I, I don't want um, to... I'm not saying that the church simply... That Israel had no other purpose than to prefigure the church, but it had that that glorious purpose um, in in addition to its own reality of giving a picture of another covenant and another people of the covenant that would be um, instituted by the Messiah, by Jesus Christ. And so Israel gives us, um, is a type of the church in so many different ways, and So if we look at that type, the first thing we see is that Israel is a very concrete and visible people. That's the first thing. Israel, so God making a covenant with Abraham, He's gives to Abraham the promise of a people who will be descended from his, will be his offspring. And so it's a very concrete people that are given a very concrete land, which causes lots of trouble in history, the land of Israel. And so Israel, the people of the old covenant, is a totally concrete, particular, and visible reality. And so this one of the biggest differences between um, the Catholic understanding of the church and most Protestant understandings of the church. Right in the Protestant view, the church is principally a spiritual reality that doesn't have clear borders, and you can't clearly say, where is it? It's principally invisible. Now, the Catholic church, the understanding of the church, is at one and the same time visible and invisible. It's a reality like Jesus Christ. Right? So, Jesus Christ is visible through his human nature, but invisible in his divine nature. And likewise, the Catholic Church is visible in her um, members, in her hierarchy, in her structures, her institutions, but invisible in her life of grace. Right? And so, people tend just to see the visible part, but she's got both parts. Right? And so, Israel is a type of the church. Um, in that, that you could, the the members of Israel are are visible, right? They're known. They're the 12 tribes, and they live in this particular area. And then, yes, they get scattered, it's true, but they still um, are visibly recognizable, right? And so that would be a first thing. And then a second aspect of how Israel um, is a type of the church is through a, um, a priesthood that's likewise visible. And right? so even though the whole nation of Israel is to be a priestly nation. And so at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, God speaks of them as a priestly people, a kingdom of priests. And likewise, the church is a priestly people, a kingdom of priests. But nevertheless, Israel had a a visible priesthood. And that was constituted by Aaron and his sons. And then there were those who helped in the liturgy, all of the tribe of Levi. And so in Israel, you had... A priesthood with a high priest, first Aaron and then his eldest son, other priests, that would be the other sons of Aaron and their descendants, and then the Levites who um, served in the liturgy, carried the Ark of the Covenant, um, did music, um, and um, and were involved in various aspects of the liturgical worship, and thus didn't have a tribe of their, um, a land of their own. And so in the church, likewise, the Catholic Church, we have a visible holy orders also divided in three grades, the high priest being the bishop in every place, in every city, and then a college of priests called the presbyterate, like the sons of the other sons of Aaron, and then deacons who um, aid the bishop um, in works of charity and liturgy. And so it, the church has preserved the same kind of visible priestly structure as Israel. And then That's maybe the most important thing of all. Israel's whole religious life centered on the priesthood up until 70 AD when the temple got destroyed. Jewish life has changed since then because, um, according to the the law of Moses, sacrifice had to be offered in the place where God would dwell with his people, first in the Ark of the Covenant and the Tent of Meeting, but then with Solomon in the temple in Jerusalem. And so all sacrifice had to be um, done there in the temple, on the altar of the, of the temple. And so Israel was, um, had a, a religious life that centered on the offering of sacrifice. And if you read the Old Testament, I mean, Book of Leviticus, many of us bleep over those parts, but sacrifice has a huge place. And if you can imagine yourself present in Jerusalem. So I just came back from a trip to, to Israel last week, and I was really so much struck by the the Temple Mount, and um, and thinking about the sacrifices that would have been offered there. So take a, um, a typical Passover at the time of, of Jesus. You would have had people, it's a pilgrimage feast, people coming from all over Israel, and everyone, every family group, say 10 or 20, offering a lamb. So if you have 100,000 pilgrims, or probably there were more than that, several hundred thousand pilgrims, that's a, a lot of lambs. Being offered that tens of thousands of lambs being offered on the Passover, right? Their throats being cut, the blood being poured out, the blood being splashed on the altar, one after the other, after the other. And all of this to show our need for redemption and atonement. And so Israel is... A religion and a a priestly people in which there's sacrificial offering made to glorify God, to give him thanks, to ask for all our needs, and in particular to ask for the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. And so the church ought to be similar, right? It ought to be modeled on that type. And therefore, the true church ought to be a church with a priesthood and with a priesthood in which sacrifice is offered. Okay, we no longer offer lambs and bulls. The one perfect sacrifice, and that's Jesus' own offering on Calvary. I'm sorry, this is, this is a big subject, but um, the Catholic understanding of the Mass is that it makes present that same sacrifice of Calvary. It's not a new one. It's not an adding to it. It's not taking away from it. It's simply making present the same victim of Calvary on the altar and the same priest, Jesus Christ, who offers himself. For us and making us present, as it were, mystically on Calvary so that we can join in the offering of the great and perfect sacrifice. And so none of those sacrifices of Israel, all of that blood that happened on the Temple Mount, none of that ultimately did the trick in, in the sense of offered something more pleasing than sin is displeasing. But Jesus Christ on Calvary offered something more pleasing, right? So he offered the perfect sacrifice more pleasing than all human sin from the beginning of history to the end is displeasing. And he gave that to his church so that we could join in the offering of that one perfect sacrifice. So the true church has to have a, can't can't have less perfect sacrifice than the Old Testament. has to have much more perfect sacrifice. And the one perfect sacrifice is Calvary. And so that, it seems to me, is a key way in which Israel prefigures the Catholic church, precisely. Obviously, Orthodox and Eastern Orthodox likewise have the Eucharist and the the perfect sacrifice.
0: Hmm. That's just so fascinating to listen to. That's a fantastic description and an unpacking of that. I really, I really appreciate that. And I think uh, our our listeners will just really enjoy. I mean, I'm gonna have to rewind that, listen to that a few times. There's so much information in there. Um, I guess I'd wonder. I mean, it's no accident that. The church has has these things that were prefigured in the Old Testament. I mean, the church, is it fair to say that the church saw itself in this way as it began? It, it began to establish its hierarchy and it began to practice the, the Eucharist and, and the Mass. Did the church, do we have evidence that the church saw itself mm-hmm. as a fulfillment of this type in the Old Testament of Israel? Well, I think, I mean, the real question is, did Jesus see it that way? And I think that's clear, right? So it's
1: not by accident that he picks 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is clearly making a new Israel that doesn't annul the old one, but is modeled on it. Right? So 12 apostles, 12 tribes, and it's those 12 that he has in the upper room when he institutes the, the Eucharist and makes gives tells them those words, do this in memory of me. And so... Um, yes, clearly from the beginning there's um, a new priesthood right? That, that Christ has given to his church on the model of the Levitical priesthood, but distinct. Right? The book of the, the letter to the Hebrews is maybe the kind of a key text on pointing out the parallel and the difference. So a new Christ being the eternal high priest of a new priesthood, according to the line of Melchizedek um, and therefore a church built now I mean all all Christians agree that the church is built on the apostles but it's in the generally for Protestants an apostolic kind of authority is a thing of simply the New Testament age and passes away with it whereas the Catholic understanding is the way that Jesus patterned the church at its founding is the way it should remain through the centuries right and so there have to be successors to that. And yes, clearly the church understood this from the beginning. We have beautiful maybe the the for me one of the best texts of, on this line is from St. Irenaeus in the 2nd century where he speaks about the successors of the apostles and in particular the successors of the bishop of Peter who right? dies in Rome and therefore the bishops who come after him in Rome as his successors being a foundation of the church obviously christ is the the true foundation right he's the the cornerstone but the apostles also are foundations and that foundation has to reach us today and it reaches us through the successors of the apostles all right so that would be another aspect of that what we profess in the creed one holy catholic and apostolic those four adjectives one holy catholic and apostolic are the marks of the church right and so this is a key thing in, um, so I had to go through this, wondering, I at the beginning of our conversion, right, we saw that we had to become Christian, but we didn't understand immediately, where, right, where is the church instituted by Christ? And that's something that everybody can ask. And so, in effect, we, we what we're asking is, where in the world do we find that church spoken of in the creed that's one holy, Catholic, and apostolic? Right? And so the We've spoken about the uh, the mark of apostolic, right, built on the successors of the apostles. Um, but then um, the mark of unity is also beautifully prefigured in the Old Covenant. So in the Old Covenant, unity, I mean, there were 12 tribes, but they had to worship together. And the great sin of Israel was and the northern tribes not wanting to worship where God had appointed in Jerusalem at the temple. Right, we want preferring a separation, um, a schism. And so we find that likewise in the history. So it's interesting how there are types not only of positive realities, but also many, many types of negative realities, like right? the realities of schism, heresy, division. And, and so the fact that all worship had to be in one place in the Old Testament, the temple, was a way of preserving that unity. All right, in the New Covenant, it's different. There's not one place. Right. Their places are wherever there are priests who can um, celebrate the mass. Right. So in the church, we've got that one sacrifice made present in every place. But in order for it to be made present, we need we need a valid priesthood. We need holy orders and we need apostolic succession. But perhaps another the mark of Catholicity. So, again, it goes together with unity in Israel. All of the, the Jews who lived Of all the 12 tribes, they had to come to Jerusalem, to the temple. Um, And then those who lived in the diaspora, right? So in in Acts chapter two, we see Jews from all over the Jewish world coming to Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost. Um, And so that's a beautiful kind of image of the Catholicity of the church, right? And so it's again, not by chance that God on that in Acts two worked the miracle of enabling the apostles to speak all of their languages. And so that's a beautiful type of what the church is today. And so the true church is that church that speaks every language that is present through God's providence in every culture and place that has that continuity, universal in place, in geography, but also in time, going back from the, to the beginning. And so universal through the centuries and then universal in geographically as well.
0: Hmm. Oh, that's great! All right, I have one more question for you, and this one is: mm-hmm. you know, you've so you approached the Catholic faith, you approached Christianity from a place of beauty, and you've you've written a lot on these deeply theological, profound topics, these ideas of types and the Eucharist and Israel. And you're, uh, I wonder what you would say to somebody listening who would say, "Well, okay, this is this is great, but why why be Catholic?" How would you answer that question? Because
1: <laughs> um, well, the first reason I mean is is the will of I mean the will of God, simply right. So Jesus prays that they may be one as we as you and I, Father, are one. So in John chapter seventeen, Jesus' high priestly prayer before he goes to Gethsemane and to his passion. So clearly, it's the will of Jesus expressed in those most poignant terms before he's about to shed his blood for us. That the church remain one. And so that should be the first reason why we want to be in that one church. All right. Many Protestants think that they are. But, um, but our, I mean, but it's obvious that we are not one in very many ways, right? So we're not one in, in three principal ways faith, worship, and governance. And so that's the sense that the, the fathers understand that unity that Jesus prayed for, that we be one. Yes, in love, but also having one faith, and that requires ultimately having an an ultimate authority in grave disputes about faith. One worship, and that would be having the same sacraments, and then one governance, having the same um, ultimate pastors, right? And that would be the successors of the apostles, and so that'd be the obviously the first reason because it's the will of Christ. But it makes a second reason is simply because there's a a desire, I think, in every human heart for unity, for communion. And of course, there's something in us also that goes against that, right? And that's, I mean, sin produces, um, again, Acts chapter 2 gives a beautiful example of this. The church um, binds together what sin drives apart, right? And so it's pride by its very nature creates disunity because my excellence is maybe blocked by yours, et cetera. And so pride tends to create schism and, and division, whereas charity and humility unite. And so, yes, I, I think there should be a desire in every heart to be in the one church and to do all that we can to bring about unity and reconciliation. And then there's a beautiful attraction of, the, of Catholicity to be in the I want to be in the one church, but a one church that's not one on a little mountaintop to be in the one church that has this huge embrace. The, um, I used to, uh, my wife and I, um, we lived in Rome for eight years, and so we would very often go to St. Peter's Square. And so St. Peter's Square was built by Bernini to, um, with a colonnade in the form of an embrace. And it's the idea that, of the church embracing the world. And that's a, a beautiful symbol of the Catholic nature of the church. And in a sense, that's what um, kind of one of the things that led us to the church was falling in love with this Catholic culture in very different kinds of Catholic culture. Right. So you get, uh, I don't know, um, Romanist cathedrals, Gothic cathedrals, Renaissance art, you know, Baroque um, Polyp- I and mean, all so many different expressions of Christianity, East and West and, and um, North and South and so forth. Um, and yet all of them um, being brought into unity. And so that's, um, again, something that the heart yearns for as well as God wishes, um, desires for his church. Because the church is meant to be an image of heaven. Right? The church militant is itself. So just as Israel was a, is a type of the church, and so the church militant, the church on earth, is a type of the church in heaven. Well, the church in heaven is going to be unity. And so I want to be here on Earth, a part of that unity, and insofar as it can exist on Earth. (laughs)
0: Well, that's fantastic. Good answer. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast this week. This has been such a pleasure for me. I can't even begin to explain. Um, What do you want to tell uh, people if they're looking to find out more about you um, and what you've written and what you're up to?
1: There's a a website, the Association of Hebrew Catholics, and that has. So I have a whole bunch of lectures that are there for free and in audio files um, on different aspects of Catholic theology. Um, And then three books came out of that called um, a series called The Mystery of Israel in the Church. Um, And then um, more recently, I've gotten I have two textbooks that are designed principally for seminary instruction, um, but are also for. Um, lay Catholics who want to understand their faith better. One is on fundamental theology, and it's called um, Faith Comes from What is Heard, an Introduction to Fundamental Theology. Fundamental theology means simply the foundations of the Catholic faith. And those foundations are God's revelation, our response of faith, the magisterium, and the nature of theology. And then I have a section on typology, which is the last section of that book. And then my most recent one is on the Eucharist and the Eucharist mystery of presence, sacrifice, and communion. Um, And so some of the things that we talked about here are explored at much greater length in that book as well.
0: Well, that sounds just fantastic. Uh, Thank you so much for being here, for having this conversation. It was extremely edifying for me and I think uh, our listeners will love it as well. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be
0: on it. Oh, thank you. Uh, God bless. God bless.
1: Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, Last.fm, In Radio, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. If it's possible on that platform, please also like, rate, and review the podcast. Especially on platforms like Apple Podcasts, those reviews go a long way to helping others find the podcast and pushing it up the charts and helping the algorithm to pick out the podcast as the interesting one to share with new people. I really, really appreciate those reviews and those rankings on those platforms. Visit thecordialcatholic.com for show notes and for my blog. Send feedback to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at cordialcatholic, and there is a thriving, growing community on Facebook. Just look for The Cordial Catholic there. Please send me any feedback you have. I love to hear it, and I love building those relationships and carrying on those conversations after the show has ended. Thank you so much for listening. Visit patreon.com slash cordial catholic if you want to support the show financially, and also thank you for your prayers and your fasting. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you so much, and God bless.